Rebecca Davis, Plan B. Do you, hello, Rebecca. Do you use soap? I do, John, liberally. But I would like to also tell your listeners that to the best of my knowledge, I can attest that John does not smell, although I am normally kept at a distance of about 1.5 metres from him across okay, the Okay, well, well I, while I read out the next SMS, walk around and... <laughs> Stand half, a, stand half a metre away and just sort of <laughs> take a deep breath. <laughs> um, have been, this is from Charles, I've been shampoo and soap free for eight years with fantastic hair and skin. So hot shower, that's it. That's all, that's all Charles does. Uh, make my own hair gel from flax seed. Good Lord. <laughs> I tell you, you, you introduce these topics and the, the never ending invention of our listeners is quite remarkable. So how are you? I'm fine, John. The only um, sort of relevant point I have to bring up there is that I'm having a sort of <clears throat> ongoing tussle with the lady who cleans my house once a week, fungi, over the use of earth-friendly detergents, which we favour to do our bit for the planet and which she hates and detests and maintains, does not clean anything and wants them all to be replaced with bleach and vim and everything else planet-destroying. So it's sort of an ongoing battle of, battle of wills in that front. Yeah. They don't work as well, she will tell you. She does, repeatedly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're off to Nigeria, which is something that you are less excited about than you might have been a month ago. Yes, I am. I mean, I think Lagos is a very exciting destination for a number of reasons. But um, just the news this week, John, about the raft of homophobic legislation, very quietly, sort of sneakily, signed into law by Nigerian President. Because we've talked John a lot Biden. about Uganda and its anti-gay laws and uh, Nigeria as you say sort of suddenly appeared and there it was with this unbelievably draconian legislation. Yeah it seems that since 2006 basically there's been this gradual extension and entrenching of homophobic laws in Africa but I think a lot of people were sort of blindsided by Nigeria even though homosexuality was illegal in Nigeria and had been for some time among the other what is it 39 or something it's definitely the majority of African countries where homosexuality is legal but this particular uh, raft of laws is, as you say, particularly draconian in that, well, they don't, for a start, they don't just um, constrain the life of gay people, but also of heterosexual Nigerians in that um, straight Nigerians can be um, sent to jail for uh, five years if they do not report suspected homosexuals to the authorities. And I believe also... So, I mean, I, I, look, let me be absurd, but this is the point. If you and I were to travel together to Nigeria and I were not to tell a Nigerian customs officer that mm. you are openly gay, I could be in trouble. I mean, that, that's the absurdity of it. That is the absurdity. I very much doubt they would apply it to tourists in the way that these things tend to happen. Mm. But, um, and the other thing is that apparently if you are accused of being homosexual, it, it can be quite a, a tricky one to get out of. In fact, I'm not quite sure what, what sort of criteria they bring, bring to bear, though. But obviously the major thing... Can I tell you about something that happened at school, mm, boarding school? Do. There was a matric. I was in Standard 6 and therefore had to do what Standard 6 boys have to do in those kinds of boys-only boarding schools. And there was a matric called Beaumont, Philip Beaumont, I think his name was, and he was believed to be gay. And because they hated him and they hated me because I was too clever for my own good, Sunday mornings they would polish his genitals with boot polish and they would make me wash him in the shower. The idea being that if he showed evidence of enjoying this 12-year-old boy soaping his genitals, that would prove he was gay and would prove that he was lower than low. So, you know, it might be law in Nigeria, but it's kind of tradition in South Africa. Good Lord, John. That's, that's chilling, mm. frankly. 
Wow. Well, back to the Nigerian gays. Um, obviously, the primary danger is faced by people who practice homosexuality, whatever that really means in Nigeria. Anyone in a, a same-sex relationship can be jailed for up to 14 years. And another absurd element of this law is that uh, gays who meet, a gay meeting is also punishable by up to to 10 years in jail. So it's this kind of very sweeping legislation that doesn't just criminalize you know, homosexual sex or whatever, but also violates a whole range of rights to do with the right of association, um, you know, just freedom of physical expression and that sort of thing. So really something that's, that I think we should be worried about. And, you know, sometimes states have these statutes on the books, but they're not really enforced. And it seems clear that in Nigeria they are going to be enforced because we have evidence already that um, reportedly at least 38 gay men have already been arrested in one of Nigeria's northern states and that 11 men are on trial for their lives in an Islamic court. So it's not as if this... This stuff is in the realm of the hypothetical anymore. So what does one do? I, I know you suggested in your column on Daily Maverick today that uh, there should at the very least be some kind of protest at the South Africa-Nigeria football game at the Cape Town Stadium on Sunday. But the reaction from the international community to this sort of thing is, is mooted. Muted, at least, not mooted. Um, yes, governments sometimes issue condemnatory statements and civil society groups in those Western and North American places do say this is not right. But there's, there's nothing, nowhere near the, the sort of anger and revulsion and action that greeted South Africa's decision to treat black people as lesser citizens. When Nigeria treats gay people as lesser citizens, and Uganda does as well, it's uh, condemn via a statement and move on. I suppose... Partly it's because we're dealing with minority groups here. I mean, a, a small minority as opposed to apartheid, which is obviously the majority of the country affected. I mean, I think the, the go-to reaction from Western powers is normally th at least threats to suspend aid. And that has happened in certain places in the past. But often, for instance, health activists argue that that can be damaging as well because it cuts off aid to those who need it most, be they gay or straight in, in these countries, though it's certainly a, a bit of a powerful, a powerful threat. But I think the other complicating factor, John, is that, for instance, in the Nigerian case, it is claimed by the government that they have the support of up to 90% of the Nigerian population, which I find perfectly plausible, to be frank, in a religious country. If, if this country were to pass an anti-gay law, I don't know whether it would be 90%, but I, my guess is a significant majority of South Africans would approve. A strong majority, exactly. So I think the issue then is that it becomes an issue of Western powers not seeming, not wanting to seem to be sort of dabbling in African matters and going against the will of, you know, religious populations, which, I mean, I don't endorse in the slightest because we can't stand by while human rights are being abused so flagrantly, whatever the religious basis. Because if that is going to be the hands-off attitude of the Western powers and if nobody is going to introduce any form of sanction or boycott or um, aversive action of any kind, then what is there to change the Nigerian government's attitude? The more you get away with something, the more emboldened you are to take it a little bit further. Quite. It has been suggested to me as well that we reserve special criticism for African countries increasingly in this regard and don't come down as heavily on, say, the Middle East as we should. And I don't know whether that's something to do with, I don't know, a fear of, again, seeming to be interfering with Islamic law as opposed to Christian nations, whether that just seems like too daunting a uh, kettle of fish to get into. 
But, I mean, it is a point. We've obviously discussed how the World Cup in Qatar is facing condemnation for potentially not um, allowing gays or asking them to go basically undercover if they're going to oh, attend. We've got the, the Winter Games starting in a couple of months in Sochi, in Sochi in, in Russia. And, um, you know, it's not quite as extreme and out mm. there as, as uh, Nigeria, but it's not that far off. I mean, we're, a, mm. you know, we're on the same playing field. Mm, exactly. I've been a bit disheartened, John, in the response to the suggestion to protest at Sunday's Chan game, which I do think is a good one. It's not my idea, but I think it's a a solid one. That a lot of people have said in various forms, leave politics out of sport. We are so tired of sport being mixed up with politics, of having football used as a political football, so to speak. Which uh, just strikes me as a very short-sighted attitude, particularly from South Africans, given the role that the international sporting boycott played in helping to mobilise international opinion against apartheid. We have such short memories as if that, that was good enough for us, but we can't show the same kind of respect for our brothers and sisters across the continent. And, I mean, I, I hope that some people... Just, uh, what, what is the suggestion, first of all? The suggestion is that, coincidentally, since this is the week when the Nigerian homophobic laws have been in the media, the international media, coincidentally, on Sunday, Bafana Bafana is playing the Nigerian Super Eagles at Cape Town Stadium at 7 p.m., so the suggestion is that Cape Townians who feel the need and who are planning to go to the to the game could carry or wear rainbow paraphernalia and perhaps carry placards expressing support for Nigerian gays and criticism of the laws, just in the hope, because this will be a game televised live throughout the continent, of sending out a message that the world is watching, that there is support for the plight of Nigerian gays. Uh, do you have any idea if anybody who's been involved with making these suggestions checked whether that would be allowed? Because I, I, I have a feeling that these things are played and these games are played under the sorts of rules that would almost certainly have security officers confiscating a poster, a banner. I mean, if you were to go in with a rainbow mm. and the camera were to focus on you, 999 out of 1,000 people wouldn't know what you were doing. Mm. Um, and- you think that, that the rainbow flag is not... A universally understood gay symbol. Is it? I would, ho- I would hope it was reasonably accessible. Mm. I take your point, John. I don't know where the placards will get through, but I'd like to see people try, and if not, at least outside the stadium, to conscientise people going in. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm generalising and perhaps stereotyping football supporters, but I think it's a stereotype based on some sense of history and fact. Probably, I don't know, 70, 80... 85% of the football fans going in there are more likely to want to beat up the protester than the Nigerian government. <laughs> Sadly, that could be true, John, and we've seen that in the difficulties faced by professional footballers in coming out and the tragic consequences sometimes that follow, as with Justin Fashanu, who ended up committing suicide a few years later. But, you know, perhaps, perhaps we'll be surprised. I don't know if you read the COPE Manifesto, the new COPE constitution. But it I'm starts not got off. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> well, it should be essential reading, John. But it starts off with the intriguing preamble that they believe all South Africans to be intrinsically good. Oh. Isn't that nice? It's completely off the mark, but I do like it. Um, Rebecca, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've seemed a little distracted, I know. It's because I'm trying to recover my email inbox so I can recover the email you sent me earlier today with some suggested ideas for our conversation, but I'm having difficulty doing that. I know that you were, you were also intrigued by um, a suggestion in Israel to ban the use of the word Nazi in connection with anything other than the Holocaust. Mm, that's right. I don't think it's a suggestion. In fact, I think it's been passed. Ah, okay. Um, that, yes, 
the use of Holocaust-related terminology that doesn't specifically apply to that Second World War context will now be banned and punishable by, I think, quite a hefty fine, sort of almost $29,000 and up to six months in jail. The the feeling being there that... um, Young Israelis in particular are using Holocaust-related terms in a very loose and trivial way, which may, um, you know, lead to a a general trivializing of of the horror. And the example that's given is that there's a Hebrew word shoah, which means catastrophe in literal terms, but is normally only reserved for the Holocaust, which is now increasingly being used to describe anything from a bad date to a, a messy kitchen, just a disaster, basically. And I think particularly as older Israelis feel that this is sort of an insult to the legacy of the Holocaust. I mean, an interesting, an interesting point because it obviously raises severe freedom of expression questions. Yeah, I, what, I think the, the use that I most often hear here in South Africa is grammar Nazi. I'm sometimes accused of being a grammar Nazi and it's, it's a phrase which is in general use. And every time I hear it or every time I read it, there is... There is a slight question mark. Is, is this an appropriate? Is there not a better way of describing somebody who is more rigid than he or she should be about the rules of grammar than Nazi? Mm. I myself often get called a feminazi, John, so we're in good, good company together. And again, I mean, that is an obviously insulting term, much more so than grammar Nazi, I'd argue, just because of the connotations. But... Um, but it's a tricky one, John, because I myself have come on radio before and argued that we should not be using rape in a loose metaphorical way um, to describe very trivial incidents. So I suppose that would have to put me on the side of the Israeli government if I'm going to be consistent here, even though there is something in me that chafes against what does seem like a freedom of expression problem, because I would never go so far as to say that the use of rape metaphorically should be criminalized. Yeah, and but if it's... If it's undesirable and you don't want to criminalize it, then you have to educate people Mm. out of using it. And Mm. how do you do that? Yeah, with literal education, I suppose, in the same way that racial epithets are no longer considered acceptable or just social sanctions against those who do use it. And, I mean, how do you get from the point where when you raise the issue you just get described as horrendously politically correct, nauseatingly so, and some of the mm. adjectives that are thrown at me and at you, I'm sure. For sure, for sure. You know, in this country, the I suppose the um, analogy would be with the apartheid, which is often invoked as a comparison for current-day political circumstance, particularly involving the ANC. It's worse than apartheid, just like apartheid and so forth. And I know a lot of people find that deeply offensive. And I think that's right, that that, that it is an offensive and completely erroneous comparison. So, uh, Rebecca is heading off later this evening, are you? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, to Lagos in Nigeria, not on holiday. I don't think uh, Lagos is a place one chooses to go on holiday, but on a journalism study trip. And, yeah, I look forward to talking to you about it when you get back. Assuming I return. Thank you, John.